As we make our way through the book of Acts, we now find ourselves in Acts chapter 17. We are in the midst of the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey, his second mission trip, I guess you could say. He's been traveling with Silas. They picked up Timothy along the way. We saw Luke, the author of the book of Acts, had joined in with them at some point. Now Luke has been left behind. The pronouns change from we to they, which means Luke, the author, is now no longer traveling with this little missionary team. They went to Europe. The gospel's now gone from Jerusalem to Samaria to the Gentiles and now to Europe. As you see on your screen, the map there shows how they crossed the Aegean Sea led by the Spirit of God. That's our title for the study of the book of Acts is discovering the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, is invested in the gospel getting to the whole world. And so the Spirit of God is leading this team out to the whole world, just like the Spirit of God leads people from this church out into the community, out into the state, out into the nation, and even to the world, as we think about even some of the folks from our church that have gone out on mission trips other places. So they're in Europe. If you look up in the top of the screen, top left corner of the screen, uh, you'll see uh, Philippi up there. That's where Paul and Silas ended up in prison. You remember two weeks ago, they were praising the Lord at midnight, singing hymns and praying, and God busted them out of that place. The jailer got saved, his whole family, and a church was planted in this main city of Philippi. Well, now we move on about a 100 miles from there via a road called the Via Ignatia, which is the main east-west route, like our Route 64, the main east-west corridor in our state here. They're moving and following that ancient road from Philippi to Thessalonica. Acts 17, verse 1 says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So as I said, traveling on the Via Ignatia, this ancient road, 100-mile trek, they're not going to make that in one day. They don't have uh, fast cars and that kind of, any cars for that matter. So they're either on foot. Uh, That trip, 100 miles, would be about three days' journey with a horse. How long did it take them to walk? We don't know for sure. But they passed through These two cities, we don't hear much about anything going on there. I'm sure they talked to some people. It'd be like going from Richmond to Stanton and stopping through Goochland, grabbing a cup of coffee, stopping at Zion's Crossroads, using the bathroom, you know, stopping at Sheets, and then moving on Charlottesville. Ah, there's a main city. We'll stop in in Charlottesville, stay there. So Charlottesville may be a place that they would stop a major city on their way. Many think Paul was actually on his way to Rome, but he turns after Thessalonica, he turns south and heads down to Athens. So there's some uh, places that's referred to in some of Paul's letters. But just know this, he's passed through these other more minor cities. They come to Thessalonica, big city, 200,000 people in this ancient city. It's a wealthy city because it's a port city. It's a, again, it's a main port city. It's one of the most prominent cities in ancient Macedonia. And uh, it was also on this trade route. So a lot of commerce happening there. It was a major hub of cult worship. So you had there in Thessalonica, all of these temples, like in Fluvanna County. Do you know there's about 50 churches in Fluvanna County? 50 different denominational churches in and around the county. So you can go, you know, you know, there's a church here, there's a church over there, and there's these different churches around. But in Thessalonica, you'd have the synagogue of the Jews there, and you'd have over on that hill, you'd have 
the temple to these Egyptian gods. They worshipped Isis and Osiris and Anubis and all these gods from the Egyptians. And then you had the Greek pantheon. You had the temple to Zeus and these, uh, you know, Aphrodite, these other types of temples. And then on top of that, you had the imperial worship. They worshipped the Caesar as a god too. So you had all these different temples that were there. And Paul tells us, in the midst of all that, the Jewish god was represented in the synagogue. So there were at least 10 Jews there. That's what it takes to have a synagogue. And that's where Paul likes to go, right? That's where he starts. So he goes into the synagogue. Verse 2 tells us, Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, the Jews in the synagogue, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So Paul rolls into the synagogue. He's a rabbi. He's got a lot of background. He's got a lot of great teaching. He's been to the best Jewish schools, and either they know him already, his reputation, or he explains to them who he is, that I was, I sat under Gamaliel as a student. Oh, Gamaliel, you sat under this great, you know, it'll be like rolling into a place and saying, well, I went to Harvard. Oh, you went to Harvard? Well, that's pretty impressive. So they would have been impressed with Paul. He would have been given an opportunity to preach, which he did. That's why he says, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. So the subject of my sermon today, Paul would say, is Jesus. The fact that he's the Messiah. That's what he would have said the topic for his sermon was. That's what he always did. He, had, he was a one-track mind. But notice, as he goes in there, he spends three weeks kind of talking to them And if you like to take notes in your Bible, you can circle the word reasoned, reasoned, and you can write next to that dialogue, conversation, or discussion. So see, it doesn't say that Paul went and for three Sabbaths preached at them or argued with them. Could have said that. That might be what it looks like in our lives. But Paul had a discussion with them. There were evidently questions and answers, and discussions as they opened up the scriptures. That was their source, right? It says that he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So here's the challenge in the world we live in. We don't do dialogue real well. We don't do conversation real well. And I'll give you a few reasons why, and we'll talk about some ways this can impact and be meaningful to us. See, we begin to talk with someone about the Bible, and some maybe a different denomination or maybe from a pseudo-Christian cult of some sort. And you get into a conversation and you say, well, this is what I believe. And they say, that's what I believe. And well, that's it. Conversation over. Because many times when we have those conversations, they turn personal, don't they? It's very hard for us to converse with someone we disagree with. We feel like, well, I can't talk to you because I disagree. And that really doesn't lead anybody anywhere. Can I tell you, when you get into conversations with people and don't take it personal, Don't let it be about your identity in terms of being personally offended if someone disagrees with you. Look, someone's going to disagree with you. Paul had people disagree with him. People are going to disagree with you. And guess what? You can still love them. Isn't that freeing? I go to a local pastor's meeting here in the county. Can you please tell me that you understand that not every church in the county believes the same thing about the Bible? We understand that. We understand that different denominations have different things that they teach and there's, you know, different doctrines that are important. And we don't all agree on some of these things in the Bible. And so I go to pastor's meetings where it's not everybody thinks like me. It's important. 
not to just hang out with people that think like you. Because you have an opportunity to be an influence in their life. And maybe in the conversation, if you're teachable, you can learn something from them too. But here's the important thing. The reason the dialogue wasn't in a vacuum, meaning that they weren't trying to discover truth apart from the Bible. You see, that's where the current culture is today. I've read about it. I've heard about it. The common way of speaking and thinking is is that truth is discovered because of dialogue. See, you talk about what you believe. I talk about what I believe. And then somewhere as we talk about these things, we discover truth. That's not what's going on here in the synagogue. They had the source of truth. Their issue wasn't what was true. The issue was just one of interpreting the scriptures. So they came from that common source. So sometimes when you're having a dialogue with people, when you're talking to people, if you're going to do that, you recognize, well, the scriptures are our source, not your denomination, not the traditions of your church. But if we're going to talk about things, then we have to go back to the Bible, back to the Bible. It doesn't, I'm a nobody. The pastor of the church down the road is a nobody. Paul even says that about himself. Who is Paul? Who is Apollos? We're just servants. I don't generate truth. So we recognize I'm a nobody when it comes to figuring out what to do, but we have the word of God. So we go together because people get so polarized. Well, we believe this. And I said, well, why do you believe that? Well, just because we do. That's what, I was, that's what I was taught when I was young. Or that's what my denomination teaches. So well, let, let's get into the Bible and talk about that. Because you've met people that say, well, the Bible really doesn't say anything about homosexuality. Well, I've read the Bible, and I think it does. So then we can talk about that if we have the Bible as a place to go together. What does the Bible say about baptismal regeneration? Well, let's look at it together. What does the Bible say about church membership? Let's look at it together. And so we have these opportunities to dialogue. But here's the challenge is we have to be willing. Number one, I think you should be. I think it's important to be willing to have conversations with people, and not via text messaging, not via email. We do understand also that text messaging is a lousy way to have a conversation about anything meaningful and important, right? Because it's too easy to misunderstand stuff. So if we're going to talk about things that matter, we need to be face-to-face. And Paul was face-to-face with the people that he was talking to. And he wasn't scared of questions, but he was willing to talk. Number one, willingness to have a conversation. Number two, he was willing to listen. Willing to listen. Do you know that's an important skill to develop in your own life is to be a good listener? Because you'll never have a good conversation if you're so busy trying to defend your point, you miss what exactly they were saying in the first place. And so you don't even really know how to answer because you missed it all together because you weren't paying. Oh, you're paying attention. (laughs) See, that was a test. But I find that being a good listener is a real skill. And any skill has to be developed. So can you in your life say, I want to be a better listener? Which means you have to focus your attention on what that person is saying so that you can respond properly and intelligently. Intelligently, yes, that's the next point. Not just be willing to, not just be a good listener, but you have to study. You have to study, and so that you have something valuable to contribute. What I found, I think you'll probably agree with me, is there's a lot of people in our world that claim to know a lot about a lot of things, but really don't know anything 
They know a little bit about the thing that they're an expert on or the thing that they do. But outside of that, there's a lot of willingness to share ignorance. Tell me I'm, I'm telling the truth here. You know that. You know, I was reading an article about uh, the way people use the Internet now because most people don't read books anymore. Book reading is going down. People are buying books. Amazon tells us people are buying books, but you know what? They're not reading them. They read the first chapter and put the book on the shelf. So we're losing attention span, but we get information from the Internet. And a lot of that is fake news. We live in the era of fake news, which people believe is true. So in this era of fake news, you pull up an article on the Internet about a thing you're interested in, and what do you typically read? Nothing past anywhere you have to scroll to. People will not scroll. They'll read the first few lines, they'll like the title, and then they'll send it out to 17 friends. Here's an article you've got to read. Well, I didn't read it, but you should read it. And so they read the introduction, never read the conclusion, never got any farther, so they don't really know what was said, but now they think they know everything about that topic, and they're willing to share with you what they think they know. Now, here's the cool thing. Here's the cool thing, because I love talking to people. I just enjoy it. I enjoy listening to people and thinking about the conversations that I'm having. And if you do a little bit of studying about the Bible, you will know more than almost everybody you meet. I've met people church for 30 years, and they'll come to Calvary Chapel, and they'll say to me, I've learned more in one year at Calvary Chapel than I did in the last 30 years going to the church I went to. Because we opened the Bible, and we read it for ourselves. So you can study just a little bit about a few core topics that are these heated conversations. So we're having conversations about gender identity. Have you taken the time to investigate the issue? Taken the time to be willing to have something to contribute? Have you studied what is the issue here with gender identity? What does God's word say about gender identity? What does God's word say about this and that? Because then when someone says to you a blanket statement that they really don't know is true, then instead of going, oh, I didn't know that, you go, well, actually, I read the Bible and it really doesn't say that. And then, then now you've got them off guard. Wait a second. I'm talking to someone who actually knows something. Ah, you know, this is scary. No, it's really not that hard. But I like this because Paul, again, he didn't preach at them. He talked to them. And he shared what he'd learned from God's word about something that was really important, the Savior. The Savior. You see, I've been going to the soup kitchen in Charlottesville for a lot of years. And a couple of years ago, I got a great compliment, I'll say, from someone at the soup kitchen who said, Steve, we want to come to your church. So why do you want to come to our church? You live in Charlottesville or you're somewhere in that area and, and a lot of folks at the soup kitchen are homeless. They said, we want to come to your church in Fluvanna. I said, why? There's a church that's right around here. No, because we know you. We want to come because when you come here to the soup kitchen, you don't preach at us. You talk to us. And that just meant so much. Parents, you've got teenage kids. They don't want you to preach at them. They've had that in so many other arenas. They have that in school. They want a chance to ask questions. When's the last time you asked your son, your daughter, grown son, grown daughter, young son, young daughter, is there any questions you have about the Lord? Any questions you have about the Bible? What's the questions you're really thinking about? What things are troubling you? See, that involves being a good listener, involves also asking good questions and being willing to talk about those things. So you have to be willing. You have to be studied up. You have to be a good listener. And you can't be offended when people disagree. So that's what happens. I found myself learning and growing. And I found myself just enjoying 
the Bible and I was seeing things I'd never seen before. And so Paul explaining and giving them the proof, demonstrating them. Again, so if you want to have good conversation with people, you just can't say, well, this is what I think. Nobody cares what you think. I hate to offend you that way, but it just doesn't matter what you think. What matters is what God says. A number of years ago, again, before um, we were still down in our place, uh, I had a little office over there on Route 15, a new pastor came to the Methodist church across the street. Happened to be a female pastor. So I went over to welcome her to the area. Hey, I'm Steve. I pastor Calvary Chapel. Welcome to Fluvanna. First thing she asked me is, what do you think about women in ministry? All right, man, boom, swords out. Here we go. Let's roll, pastor. I mean, she was ready to grapple right there. And I said, you know what? It really doesn't matter what I think about women in ministry. The question is, what does the Bible say about women in ministry? And you have to be persuaded that you've searched the scriptures and come to peace with what you've found. And then we were friends after that. See, that wasn't the time to get into a theological discussion. See, you got to be wise and smart. And maybe you would have done it. Maybe you would have jumped in with both feet, you know, pulled your sword and man, the fight would be on. But you know, it wasn't time for that. It wasn't there to, to discuss theology of women in ministry and all that. I'll have that discussion sometime. But at that point, just, hey, the scriptures are what matter. Not what do you think. Avoid any time you're in a conversation. The minute you say, well, I think, then you're setting yourself up for argumentation and debate. Don't make these conversations personal. For Paul, it wasn't, well, here's who I think Jesus is. He says, here's who the scriptures say Jesus is. And he showed them. Can you point for that thing you do, for that thing you're into? Can you point to scripture for that? Here's why I believe in this doctrine. If not, then study up on it. Get to know the word. Your conversations will be much more enjoyable and in a lot of ways, a lot shorter too. He explained and demonstrated that the Christ had to suffer, the Messiah of the Jews, the one they were waiting for, first had to suffer and then rise from the dead. And he said, this Jesus whom I preached to you is the Christ. He showed how Jesus fit the picture biblically perfectly. He didn't fit their picture of what they had in their mind. That's why they rejected him. But Paul shows them, actually, he fits the biblical picture, the scriptural picture, perfectly. He takes them to Isaiah 53. He says, okay, come on, church, let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah 53 in our little small group Bible study. By the way, that's why small groups are so valuable. See, we can't really have a discussion in this venue. Although I try to really preach conversationally, yet there's really not opportunity for you to ask questions. Small group Bible studies, small group men's studies, women's studies, those are great places where you can actually reason together, talk together, discuss these verses. Very valuable for your life. So Paul takes them to Isaiah 53 and says, here, you guys read it. And let's talk about that. The suffering servant, the one who would become king having to suffer. And he takes them through. Well, the result was, verse 4, some of them were persuaded. Well, that's pretty good. I mean, some were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks. Who are the devout Greeks? These are the what we call the God-fearing Gentiles. These are not Jewish people. They're Gentiles who have rejected the cultish pagan worship and have really found some affinity for the God of the Jews. So they're not Jews, but they hang out at the synagogue 
in their own special section and they hear about the God of the Jews and that's who they uh, believe in. So a multitude of those were persuaded and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. I mean, you're doing good when some of the Jews are persuaded and you're doing great when the multitude of the devout Greeks are persuaded. But man, when you get the leading women, you get the women on your side, man, you're doing good then. Because these are influential women, literally, of this city, Thessalonica. And you find out that they had very prominent women's culture there. Women had a place, a very prominent place in society there in Thessalonica. So there's some fruitfulness there. But the problem was, verse 5, the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious. Why? Because it seems as if they feel Paul had stolen their sheep. You see, now these people that used to hang at the synagogue, now they're affiliating with Paul and Silas and their teaching. They're sort of switching teams, you could say. And these guys didn't like that. Had nothing to do with truth, right? Had to do with jealousy. Well, we wanted them to follow us. We wanted them to come to our church, be part of our thing. They became envious, so they took some of the evil men from the marketplace. That's where evil men hang out, in the marketplace. They gathered a mob. They don't even know these guys. Like, hey, I'll give you a gift card to Food Lion if you come and start a riot with us. Sure, we're in. You, know, you don't even have to give me that. Always up for a riot. So they gathered a mob. They set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason. Well, who in the world is Jason? You'll find out in a minute. They attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them, Paul and Silas, out to the people. But they weren't home. Verse 6 says, when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city. So since Paul and Silas weren't there, they grabbed this guy, Jason, who it turns out hosted the church, probably an early convert when Paul persuaded some of these in the synagogue. Jason was probably a Jewish guy that uh, was persuaded to believe in Jesus and allows Paul and Silas to come and stay with him and his family. Maybe this is where the church starts to meet in his house, just like the church in Philippi met in Lydia's house. Jason uh, opening his home for this. So they drag, you can't get Paul and Silas, well, we'll get Jason and some other people there and we'll bring them out. And look what they cried out. These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. What an accusation. What a compliment. Don't you wish the church still wielded that kind of cultural power and influence? That the church would have that kind of influence in its city, in its town, in its village to turn that town upside down? Do you know that's what happens when revival happens? You can tell when a revival's been there, not because people got excited and raised their hands and sang songs for a week and then went home. Revival leaves a wake in its path, a wake of righteousness purity, repentance, and a turning from sin, and changed lives and transformed people. That's what a revival does. So wherever they went, revival broke out. And they were turning, in their mind, the world upside down. But again, that's all a matter of perspective, isn't it? The world was already upside down. They were just getting it upside right again, or something like that. So this is the challenge, you know, again, of our Christianity. Does it actually impact the world we live in? I mean, are we influencing our local culture? Or have we become too much like the world? Have we become upside down? The gospel presents an upside down kind of message, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. Jesus says, who's going to be first? See, we think the first are going to be first. You know, second place is first losers. It's the first that are first. No, Jesus said it's the last that would be first. 
but that's upside down. Right. But wait, 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 wait. Who are going to be great? The great people in the world are the ones that get served. The ones that everybody swarms around to serve them. The ones that have lots of people serving them and helping them. Well, no, no. Jesus said, the one who's great, check out the one who's waiting on table. Look at the servant. That's the one that's great. Wait, that's upside down. Right. But we're so influenced by our culture that we begin to forget these basic backwards truths, counterintuitive, and therefore we never impact the world because we're so busy trying to be great in the world's eyes that we forget that what really matters to Jesus is being a servant. And we're so busy trying to prove our greatness that we miss out on real greatness because that's upside down. Read the Beatitudes. You want to talk about upside down? Read the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, that's upside down. Blessed are those who mourn. It's upside down. So they recognize that. And even in their accusation, they said, these guys have turned the world upside down, and now they're here. They've upset the apple cart. They've stirred the pot. They've ruffled some feathers. And now they're going to do it here too. And we like the status quo. You know what status quo is? It means the existing condition. When Jesus comes into the situation, really comes in, when the Spirit of God gets a hold of a church, things don't stay the way they've always been. And that makes people really uncomfortable. But that makes me really excited. Because the way people are ain't so great. How many of you think people need to change? How many of you know someone that needs to change? Every morning I get up and I see people that need to change. That's just right when I walk into the bathroom and look in the mirror. That's where we start. And we have this message. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. The gospel, the spirit of God. So Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. So people in that day, I said that they worshiped Caesar. They had an imperial worship. Part of that was taking and making an allegiance. You know, we say the pledge of allegiance Right? We still say that in the schools in some places. I think we say it here in Fluvanna. We do the Pledge of Allegiance. They made a Pledge of Allegiance not to Rome, but to the Caesar himself. And that pledge involved that me and my family are loyal to the Caesar. And if anybody, or if we find out anybody is bringing any threats to him or threats to his reign, we are obligated to make that known. And so evidently in Paul's message... He's made it known that Jesus is a king. He's going to suffer. He was humiliated. He suffered, but now he reigns. And they heard that. And see, that's why they say they're preaching things contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Because they're preaching about another king. That's a threat. So they troubled the crowd and the rules of the city uh, when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Evidently, some type of pledge where Jason had to promise that he wouldn't let them come back and live in his house. So they make some kind of financial pledge and, and then they let them go. Now, verse 10 says, then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So were Paul and Silas in hiding somewhere? We don't know. But when they get back in touch with them, they say, Paul and Silas, you guys got to get out of town. Things are bad here. Jason's in trouble. So Paul says, you know what? We're all right. We're, it's time to go. So they send them off to Berea. Again, they're not heading west anymore. They get off the Via Ignatia and they start to head south down toward Athens. They go about 50 miles south to this place called Berea. When they arrive there, 
they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now I'm sure as they're walking up to that synagogue, Paul and Silas are looking at each other kind of like, you ready? I'm ready. You ready? I mean, it's never gone well. I mean, they, they get some fruit, but there's always been a tax. You know, we would tend to avoid, let's not go to the synagogue. You remember what happened there last time? We should do something else. But they would go right there, right there to the synagogue. But something different happens this time. They don't have the same experience that they've had all these other places. Look what it says, verse 11. But these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Interesting, Paul and Silas in the synagogue, they begin to go through the spiel about Jesus. They begin to share the Bible study and they're expecting the throwback. They're expecting the challenge. But instead, they meet a group of people who he calls fair-minded. The word is literally noble or of high birth. So Luke, the writer, connects the fact that they were, can you say it, folks, teachable? Teachable? You can write that in there. Number one, they were teachable. It's like you're someone of high birth. That Being teachable, being open, was equated with being of high birth. And that's what he says. They were teachable. Are you teachable? But by the way, the word teachable is readiness. You can write next to that. Not just that they were teachable, passively speaking, but they were teachable, actively speaking, meaning they were eager to learn. Eager to learn. Eager to learn. Are you eager to learn? I find out as I look around, it's my experience. Again, I can toss to you. I do so much reading and research when I prepare just to see the pulse of the culture. I could share with you all kinds of statistics and stories and articles about people and where we are in terms of learning and reading. And, you know, I shared some of that before. But I think we could just say from our experience, what is it that people are mostly eager for? Would you say people are mostly eager for entertainment? I think that we would probably say, yeah, you know, most people are watching and engaged in some fairly mindless activities. And I'm not condemning, I'm just saying that's where we are as a culture. I find that in terms of learning, you'll learn something that's important to you. See, you're willing to have a dialogue with your doctor after your diagnosis. All of a sudden, you've got fibromyalgia, and now you've got to know everything there is about fibromyalgia. Why? Because it's meaningful to you now. A lot of times, we're not eager to learn because we just don't see how it impacts us. But they heard this about Jesus, and instead of rejecting it, or instead of going, well, we learned this last year. Well, I used to learn this in my old church. They said, huh, well, let me think about that. Now, they didn't just believe what Paul said because he said it, because this was the Apostle Paul. They could have said, well, it's Paul that said it, and we're eager to learn. So sometimes the danger of being eager to learn is that you're also very susceptible to lies, Right? If you're too eager for new information for the sake of just new information, then you can fall prey to lies, but not the people in Berea. That's why there's so many churches named Berean Baptist Church or Berean this church, right? A lot of churches named Berean. Why? Because it's a noble thing for what they did. They were eager to learn. That's good. But they weren't going to be vulnerable to lies. Why? Because they searched the scriptures daily. They took what they heard and they said, well, I know Paul believes it himself. I know Paul preaches it with zeal, but I want to make sure I do my homework. Folks, when's the last time you listened to one of the sermons here and went home and said, let me just double check what Steve said. Please, 
If you ever disagree with something you've heard me preach, you call me on it. You send me an email, send me a text. We'll have a conversation about it. Because I'm still learning. Anybody else still learning? I've had some great conversations where I heard somebody else's point. And I went, you know what? That's, wow, I see what you're saying. That makes sense. And it's persuaded me to see the Bible is saying something in that area that I had missed. But then I've had conversations with someone where I go, yeah, no, not buying it. I think you're way off mark. I think this is what the Bible says and here's why. But see, the key is they investigated. They investigated watching TV, watching a TV preacher a number of years ago. And this will explain to you why we open our Bibles here. Preacher, well-known author, books in the bookstores, Barnes and Noble, books on the shelves, huge church, mega church, insanely popular throughout the world. Well-known. If I said his name, you'd know him right away. Watching one of his sermons, someone and I had been talking about this person. And so I said, well, let me check it out. Let me see. Let me do some research. And so I pulled up the internet, pull up a sermon. The topic for the latest sermon was the good that is in you, which sounds like a great seeker-friendly sermon title for people that just are looking for self-help and encouragement. All the good that's in you. That was the title. So what's the verse? Where is he preaching that from? Because I've read my Bible. So you can't pull the wool over my eyes because I pretty much know what's in the Bible. And I know that Paul said in Romans that in my flesh dwells what, folks? No good thing. So now, wait a second. I got a preacher with a multitude of followers saying that there's all these good in me. So that got my attention. So I said, let me check this out. So verse up on the screen. What's the verse? The verse is Philemon. Only one chapter in Philemon. The verse is Philemon 4. It says, I thank my God making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints. And here's where the verse started on the screen. Verse 6 says, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you. But wow, that's interesting. And that's exactly the verse that was on the screen. But you know what? Had people had their Bibles open in that church, which they didn't, they would have read the rest of the verse, which said, every good thing that is in you in Christ Jesus. That's an important difference, isn't it, folks? That's a pretty important difference. Because if there's anything good in me, it's because of Jesus in me. That's the good in me. Because in my flesh, I still stand on the book of Romans. In my flesh dwells no good thing. My cravings, my desires, my lust, they don't lead me to life. They lead me to destruction. But Christ comes into a life. And now he in me brings good in me, godliness in me. That's the truth. So what happened was God's people reading that, now they go after church. They now have this thought, erroneous thought, that leads to an erroneous life of thinking about all this good stuff in them. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be encouraged. There's plenty in the Bible to encourage you. You are unconditionally loved. You're forgiven. God's grace is abundant. The goodness of God leads to repentance. I mean, I could go on and on about all the spiritual blessings. There's plenty to encourage you with from the scriptures. But I won't lie to you. I'll also tell you the truth about you. So that's why you got to search the scriptures. Now, interestingly, one other note is in a lot of cultures, searching the scriptures, searching, asking questions and challenging authority is not acceptable. See, we happen to live in a culture that values learning and reasoning. But in Muslim culture, 
do you know that that's not allowed? Why? Because the Muslim culture, Middle Eastern culture, is based on honor and shame. And to challenge someone in authority is to dishonor them. This is a book called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus by Nabil Qureshi. He's uh, involved with Ravi Zacharias's ministry. I'll read to you just two quick things and then we'll press on. He says, I also realized that I asked far too many questions for my relatives' tastes. In our culture, elders are simply to be obeyed. Obedience is what shows them that you respect them and in certain contexts, love them. Questions are often seen as a challenge to authority. In school, though, our teachers taught us critical thinking and that it was good to question everything. I told that to my son one day. I said, son, the most important lesson I can give you, question everything. He said, why? True story. True story. He said, my mind was being shaped to think critically, but that shape did not fit into our culture. Why not? I'll read you one more short section. Islamic culture tends to establish people of high status as authorities, whereas the authority in Western culture is reason itself. These alternative seats of authority permeate the mind, determining the moral outlook of whole societies. When authority is derived from position rather than reason, the act of questioning leadership is dangerous because it has the potential to upset the system. Dissension is reprimanded and obedience rewarded. Correct and incorrect courses of action are assessed socially, not individually. A person's virtue is thus determined by how well he meets social expectations and not by individual determination of right and wrong. So now you understand why there's such a difficulty with understanding why someone who uh, is Muslim does certain things. Because the issue in that culture isn't necessarily right or wrong. It's, am I going to bring my family and myself honor or shame? So if I can do something like lying or killing, if it brings my family honor. And I, I refer you, I'm not speaking on my own authority. I'm referring you to the book. This book is an excellent book if you're interested. He converts, by the way, through conversation to become a Christian. Back to uh, the book of Acts, they searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Just because someone shares it with a lot of zeal, just because someone shares it with a lot of charisma, just because the church is getting excited and the keyboards are playing in the background and the, the atmosphere is rising and everybody's excited and the church is all going, amen, amen, amen. The pastor could be lying. I've watched it with my own eyes. The church, oh, amen, pastor. I'm like, do you know what you're amening? Like he's not giving you the truth. And so I want, you should want for yourself, take the time, folks. Get into the word because then you can't be duped. I don't like being taken advantage of, do you? And you can't just relegate that to the, your children's Sunday school teachers to teach them truth. You should know what your kids are learning. And you can have the opportunity to be a source of authority in your kid's life to help lead them and guide them in their own study of the scriptures. Why? to find out if it's true or not. Because, listen, because if what Paul is saying is true, it's a life changer. Now notice again, was Paul afraid of questions? Did Paul go, oh no, they're searching the scriptures. Oh no, oh no, they're going to find out it's all full of lies. No, go ahead, search it out. You'll find it bears out and it has over thousands of years. They search the scriptures daily to see if these things were so and watch what happens. Look at the result, verse 12. Therefore, many of them believed because they owned it. Here's what happens. When you get into the Bible, someone lays a trip on you at the coffee shop. They say, well, actually, you know, here's what I believe. And you go, whoa, that was, I've never heard that before. I hear all kinds of stuff. Can you imagine as a pastor, I hear all kinds of wacky doctrine. And I said, well, how'd you develop that? Well, I just, this is what my brother told me. Who in the world is your brother? 
people got all kinds of crazy things, and I hear all kinds of stuff. So you search it out. And when you do that, when you search that out, you know what happens is now you own it. Now you own it. And that's a beautiful feeling because I've done the homework. I understand it. I'm not just regurgitating. Don't just regurgitate. Regurgitation of information without inspection. That's a bad thing. It means, well, I'm just repeating it. I don't understand it, but I just repeat it all the time. Take the time, get in, know what it says, because then you own it and it will lead you. Listen, there's so many people that got into this book to prove it wrong. You've read The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel. Got into the word of God. Why? To prove it wrong. So many people get into the Bible to prove it wrong. And what happens? They begin to search it out and they become believers. But most people you talk to, they bring you truth. They say, well, here's what I believe. And you say, well, have you read that in the Bible? Well, I've never actually read the Bible because you're just regurgitating what you heard someone else say. You have no idea if it's true. Then many of them believed and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was being preached by Paul at Berea, uh-oh, they came there also and stirred up the crowds. They made the 50-mile trek with their picket signs and with their challenges to stir up the crowds there. So immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea, but both Silas and Timothy remained there. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So their short time in Berea is up. They've planted some awesome seeds. He's met some wonderful Jewish people relative to the Jews that were in Thessalonica. These people were awesome. They were a blast to do Bible study because they weren't offended by it. They weren't argumentary about it. They were willing to enter that discussion and search it out, and it led to fruit. And he becomes very close with even the, the Thessalonican church, but I wish we had more about the Berean church, don't you? about these believers that were more noble-minded. So I pray that you would be noble-minded and you would search the scriptures just because the guy's on TV and he wears a suit, drives a fancy car and has a program doesn't mean he's right. Just because I sit here in front of you doesn't mean I'm right. You search it out, you check it out, you do your homework and then you'll own it. Then you'll be confident in what you believe. Amen?